was praying that the raging storm would stay a little longer with your feet up on the dashboard of my summer dream in westward i was hoping that we'd wake up to the softest of spring mornings humming do 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 Sapbush Hollow chronicles and lessons from a life tied to family, community, and the land. I'm Shannon Hayes, and I operate Sapbush Hollow Farm with three generations of my family in the northern Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. I'm the chef owner of Sapbush Cafe, a farm to table and neighbor to neighbor experience, open Saturdays only in our tiny hamlet of West Fulton. And I'm also the author of a few books, including Radical Homemakers and the Grass Fed Gourmet. This podcast is the audio version of my blog, which can be found at sapbush.com or theradicalhomemaker.net. It's numbers crunching season, yay! And if you're like a lot of farmers and small business owners, you might be facing down more red digits than black. That doesn't mean your business isn't profitable, and there are economic strategies you can employ to make sure of this. That's what I'll be talking about this week on The Hearth of Sapbush Hollow. What a farm can do. Everything takes longer, costs more, and returns less than you think. These are the summary thoughts I have as I pour over the numbers while getting ready for our annual meeting in tax season. I plan to make the argument that while income wasn't as much as we'd hoped, educational dividends were high. We learned a lot from our mistakes this year. I'm not the only one. As I scan my Instagram feed each week, I see lots and lots of pretty shots from all the farms I follow. Winter sunset, snow-kissed cattle, contented pigs bedded down out of the cold. They give me this sense of assurance. It doesn't matter what's happening in the news. All is still right with the world. The ruminants still chew their cuds, and the snow still muffles the chaos of life. But periodically, there's another kind of post, and that's when I see the pain. All is not right with the world. Occasionally, farmers use the social platform as a confessional. I can't afford my winter feed. I'm too tired. I don't know how I'll make it through another season. One post in particular comes to my mind as I face down my own annual numbers. I'm so grateful that my husband has a job. I don't think this farm can ever do more than nourish our bodies and spirits. This post stirs me so deeply that I print it off and lay it on my desk with the 2019 income and expense calculations. I feel like I owe this farmer words. I don't actually know her personally. 
I don't feel like the Instagram comment section is an appropriate platform to outline my own offbeat system for reckoning my financial picture. But the truth is, the numbers on the paper only tell a tiny part of the story of how our family makes a go of it with these scrappy mountain pastures. This is not an admission that a family cannot make a living farming, but I do believe that the conventional understanding of making it is warped. I spent a lot of years studying farmers and livelihoods from my master's and PhD at Cornell. The notion that the productivity of a farm, whether it's the milk, row crops, or animal units, supplies the entirety of a family's income is a modern post-World War II mythical expectation. And, by the way, it was after World War II that we began seeing the precipitous decline in farm numbers. Only the largest farms could survive under this modern quote-unquote model for success. If we want to know how small farms actually made it and can make it today, then we need an understanding of earlier agrarian economic survival. For a quick and easy lesson, look back on some favorite childhood literature like Farmer Boy or The Oxcart Man. Income streams for a life in harmony with the land were, and should be, diversified. And diversified doesn't mean soybeans and corn or chickens and pork and beef. It has always been a diversification of the faculties, an equal application of the mind and all parts of the body. Some income was passive, such as the letting of spare bedrooms. Some required more use of the mind, like teaching or training work animals. Some required more manual skills and less trudging through the snow, such as shaving shingles, carpentry, or sewing. Sometimes there was work for hire during slower times. And only one segment of the economic picture required the brute strength and endurance of tilling soil and tending livestock. That's the model of agrarian success I think is most effective and most pleasurable today. That means we can't understand the farming picture with the straightforward type of accounting that a typical wage earner turns in on their taxes. A farm with numbers in the red can actually be very profitable as part of an overall economic picture. But in order for that to be the case, anyone who wants to make a life in harmony with the land needs to understand the four primary sources of income. Earned income, business income, passive income, and I include investment income in this, and non-monetary income. Once those are understood, a farm family should choose at least three out of these four categories to ensure economic survival. Earned income is the most conventional choice. Lots of independent, free-spirit couples send one person out into the workforce to bring home the steady paycheck and health insurance benefits. It provides a sense of security. However, earned income happens to be the most expensive income to garner. Earned income is taxed first, and then the wage earner must live on whatever's left. With a business income, the business is entitled to cover the expenses and then pay taxes on what's left. Thus, if one member of a family has a truly fulfilling job, then the business income from the farm or any other small business venture can help to substantially reduce the family's tax burden and increase the net household income, even if the business doesn't generate a lot of profit. 
As I've aged and slowly recognized the limits of my body to perform all the daily labors of my family's vocation, I've embraced the importance of passive income. The U.S. government has a very strict definition of passive income. (laughs) But as farmers, just about every form of income seems passive compared to the work we do in a day. Thus, our family's choice to buy the post office building where we house our cafe was critical. Yes, we still have to maintain the building and the grounds, but compared to processing chickens and cutting up fat for lard and hauling feed and water buckets and getting up at 3 a.m. to make croissants for the cafe, (laughs) the work is minimal in exchange for the monthly rent checks we get from our tenants. Passive income can also include royalties. Anyone care to buy one of my books? And, in my broader definition, includes investment income. It might also include cooperative marketing, like selling someone else's products alongside your own at your place of business. Passive income can save the day when an unexpected farm expense makes me fear I won't be able to pay the feed bill. Until farmers can be fairly compensated for the labor it requires to grow quality food, passive income is important. It leverages our ability to rebuild working regenerative economies. But for our family, and for many farm families, non-monetary income is probably the most significant income source. Non-monetary income never gets a dollar figure attached to it, but it offsets considerable expense. It includes the food we grow and cook for ourselves, the child or elder care, the tuition that homeschooling might supplant. It includes what we might do for barter or personal expenses that may be offset by a business. For example, we get to eat the meat that we can't sell or the leftovers from the cafe, and the farm pays for the cell phone and the car that make our lives more convenient. While working on my latest book manuscript on this topic last winter, I crunched the numbers and calculated our family's non-monetary income. It came to over $70,000. This is how a family of four can thrive and even build savings on less than $20,000 worth of taxable income in a year. But the non-monetary income is greater than that. There are parts that aren't quantifiable, as I've talked about many times, the true wealth. This is the ability to take off on a weekday morning to ski around the farm, to drink in the glories of the streams and the mountains and the stone walls, It's the freedom to sit with your kid over a cup of coffee and ponder the great mysteries that reveal themselves in algebra. It's the time we can give to keep a marriage solid and to maintain good relationships with our children. It's the opportunity to debate with mom and dad over principles of farming and business and share labor with them, rather than fixate ad nauseum on bladders and prostates and blood pressure. The trouble with monetary income, however, is that we often forget to collect on it. We forget to enjoy the meal. We forget that we are allowed to give ourselves time to take the walk, to have the lengthy conversation that our quirky lives have carved out for us. Or we stare at the spreadsheets, see the red, and forget all the profit we truly garner in a year. Reflecting on this, I push aside my own spreadsheets and call out to Bob. He comes downstairs and makes coffee, and we throw the skis and the dogs in the car. We set out on the farm trail just as day breaks. 
We ski up the side hill and climb above the tree line just as the sun rises and scatters diamonds across the snow. Finding a place in the sun, we pull our coffee mugs from our packs and sit down with the dogs to enjoy January light on our faces while taking in the pastures and the lavender hues on the mountains. And as we sit there, bathing in the light, I know that the bottom line on my numbers is just fine. Income generated covered expenses. End of story. The real story, the real dividends, the real payoff is right here. Right now. And I think about what that woman wrote. I don't think this farm can ever do more than nourish our bodies and spirits. If that's what a farm can do, that's a lot. To learn more about our grass-fed meats, weekly cafe specials, wool yarn, all-natural wool bedding, our super cozy vacation rental, or our tenter site, be sure to visit sapbush.com. There you can also find out more about my books or how to schedule me for a speaking event or a class. You can also just pose a question that you'd like me to answer on air. If you enjoyed this, I hope you did, please take a few minutes and leave a review. This helps other folks find my work. And if you could share this podcast with friends and family, so much the better to help get the ideas to spread. Thank you, folks. I couldn't do it without you. If you'd like to help support my work and gain access to exclusive content, you can do so for as little as $1 a month by hopping over to Patreon and looking up Shannon Hayes. This was produced and edited by the sexiest man alive, my husband Bob Hooper, and the great music we're listening to comes to us from memory. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Now the birds are singing about all the things they've seen over in the other countries, sowing seeds and reaping dreams, and I think that I am the